0: Hello, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We are starting a new series in the book of James called An Identity of Grace. James is sort of in the second two-thirds of your uh, New Testament if you want to turn there or it's printed for you on page nine in your bulletin in the ESV translation. We also have a kid's version there I'll be referring to as well. Of course, you're welcome to turn there on your own smartphones as well. And you know, James, as we get started, James is a very interesting um letter as i was having some conversations over the past couple weeks with people about we're starting the book of james had some interesting things said to me such as oh it's scary puts a lot of pressure on you i've never really enjoyed james that much so um and i would remind you those of you who are church history buffs who know this name martin luther hated the book of james um he came back later. He he mellowed as he got older and came back around to it. He was okay, but earlier he he did not like it. He wanted it out of the New Testament. He called it an epistle of straw. Wasn't a big fan. What's what's up with James to get these kind of reactions? What's going on with James? Well, whereas Paul is, is the champion in his letters of justification by grace through faith. Right there, you bring nothing to the table. It's all of the Lord's grace. It's all of the Lord's Jesus, emphasizing you can do nothing for salvation. James is a bit different. Um, I used to live in Missouri years, years, years ago, and you know Missouri has on its license plate, right, the show me state. They wanna see it, you know, show me. And James kinda is like, well, you know, I'm from Missouri too. James is the show me epistle. James knows that what we actually believe, not what we say we believe, but what we actually believe is shown in how we live. And he's all about this. Those who claim to know Jesus, he wants to make sure that we prove it with our lives. James is a hypocrisy hunter, we could say. So who is James? Who is this guy? Why are we reading some book about some guy named James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the pastor of the initial church in Jerusalem at the very beginning of the church age. And I want to stop right there and just think about that and ask a question. Okay, how many of you have siblings? Go ahead, raise your hand. I want to see. How many of you have siblings, okay? What would it take for you to worship one of them as God and to give your life to serving them? <laughs> I mean, I have a sister and I got to tell you, for me, it has have to be true. That's the only way I would do it. And I doubt you are much different, and I doubt James was much different. Think about that. He grew up with Jesus, his big brother, and he had no problem saying this man is God incarnate, and he gave his life serving him. So James is a Jewish Christian. He ministers to Jewish Christians, and he writes to Jewish Christians throughout the Roman Empire. James is a, is a kind of letter that's meant to be distributed to churches regardless of where they are. So where some letters are written to the church right here. Yeah, James is written to Jewish Christians all over the place, or any Christians but really focused on Jewish Christians. Hence it has that weird intro in verse one that we're gonna get to in a second. So James is often very direct he goes for shock value, he, 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 he loves deeply, but he doesn't always know how to show that, and he just kind of says it like it is. As I was trying to think of how to do this, I think this is a compliment, so I'm gonna go ahead and say it. James makes me think of Marty a lot. <laughs> honestly, honestly. Someone who just loves deeply and just says it like it is, in love, you know? And so um, he's not like Mike and I who are much more sensitive, and he hurts our feelings all the time. Anyway, um, so. So for James, your life is the proclamation of your theology. That's what he wants you to see. Your life is the proclamation of your theology. If authenticity is important to you, if integrity matters to you, you're going to resonate with the book of James. You're going to dig this book. So with that intro, would you please stand, if you are able, as we look together at the first 12 chapters. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> this is God's word. James A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass for its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray together. O gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for inspiring different human authors to write according to your spirit what we need to know you, to know ourselves, to know the salvation you offer to us in Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would even now do your gospel surgery of showing us where we need to repent, where we need to press in, and where your grace needs to come and change us. We ask you would do this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. so James just jumps right in he doesn't do this big formal greeting like other letters he doesn't have time for all that you know emotional stuff let's just jump right in he basically says look you've been through junk you're going through junk and so I want to pour gospel resources into your life while you're going through all this junk you ever gone through some bad stuff you ever gone through things you might call a trial you ever wonder where God was and all that Maybe some well-meaning church folk in that, you know, came to you and said, well, count it all joy when you experience trials, right? That's super, I know, <laughs> right? Or, or maybe the one I've gotten sometimes in trials is, well, who do you think in your family sinned to cause this? That's a good one, yeah. That's even better. See, the assumption there is what? Well, good, bad things don't happen to good Christians. So if you're doing something wrong, you're gonna get wrong. If something is going wrong in your life, there must be something bad you did. James, our boy Jimbo here wants to come in and slap some sense into that mentality from the very beginning. There is no connection between the circumstances of your life as far as trials and difficulties and and your moral, ethical, religious behavior before God. James wants to separate those two things. Say, no, you cannot assume a one-to-one relationship. You can't assume, oh, someone's going through trials. (gasps) Someone sinned. So maybe your grandma, like my grandma, said this, and we may, may gently correct her if she's still around. No, God is not gonna get you for that. Okay, so, so, I mean, but this is important. I mean, do you have trials in your life sometimes? Is your life difficult? Well, James is gonna talk about that from the very beginning. He talks about that right here today in these 12 verses, and that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When the pressure's on, God's joy is there for the asking. So we're gonna jump right in here to joy on trials in the first four verses. So he tells them right away, rejoice in your trials. We could literally translate that phrase as think of all the joy when you're going through trials and difficulties and bad things. I mean, James hits us straight up. The Christian life is not about happiness and peace. Those are benefits, but the goal is maturity. The goal is to know more of Jesus and be more like him. And often it's trials and difficulties that get us towards that goal. See, James tells us the hard truth from the very beginning. Ease is abnormal. Trials are normal. They're common. Now I know we live and think the opposite way and we'll worry about that later. That's the Holy Spirit's problem. But James wants to tell us from the very beginning, no, when things are, going, are difficult, that's normal when things are great and soaring, oh rejoice, drink it up, but recognize that's, that's not normal, that's a respite. Why, why has God set up such a system? Why does it work that way? Well James tells us in verse three, let's look together, he says this. Why? He tells us that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials produce a patient endurance, an active staying power. He builds that in his people, God does, with trials, with difficulties. I mean, we live in an instant glorification culture and that right there just doesn't sit well with us, does it? Right, we're, we're, we're like the opposite of steadfastness in our culture. We want it right now. We deserve pleasure and leisure now. Everything tells us we can have what we want now. Waiting, denying yourself, delayed gratification is almost immoral. Why would you do that? You, should, you deserve it now. And that cultural assumption kind of infects everything. It causes us often in church world, we we complain about challenges. We don't count them all joy. We feel exhausted when we have to invest in the lives of others. We act put out if others start to depend upon us. See, and, and to counter that cultural infection, God brings the vaccine of trials to build active staying power in his people. God brings trials to make us more like Jesus, to build steadfastness in us. So instead of trying to avoid trials, which is what I do, verse four says, no, let them go to their goal. See, here's where James gets weird. Here's where we start to think, maybe Luther had a point here about this epistle of straw stuff. Let's look together at verse four. What does he say? He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, Perfect? Complete? Lacking in nothing? I mean, we we believe rightly that the Holy Spirit has inspired the scriptures, that the scriptures are the very word of God. But sometimes you read verses like this and you want to go, um, God, have you met any Christians? I mean, my life is imperfect, incomplete, and lacking in quite a lot. And I'm a professional. How, how, how are you amateurs stacking up? <laughs> right? What, what in the world do we do with this? Well, context matters. Remember, James is Jewish, and he's writing to Jewish people who have confessed Jesus as their Messiah. They're still in a very Jewish world. This is where Christianity is, appears to the Roman Empire to be a Jewish sect. It wasn't until they started to recognize it as a separate, separate religion that persecution started. So here at the very beginning, it looks just like a flavor of Judaism. So James is kind of writing to those people. And what do Jewish people think about in that system think about words like perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? Well, those are words used in the Old Testament to describe the offerings they would bring to the temple it describes the qualitative nature of those things. Those lambs, those doves, those bulls, whatever they brought, couldn't have blemishes. They had to be perfect. They couldn't have injuries. They had to be complete. They couldn't be like, you know, deficient. They had to, they, they couldn't be lacking in anything. They had to be a perfect sacrifice to bring to God. And one of the things we forget is most of the time, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were not about atonement. They were not about getting forgiveness. They were about worship in general. There was daily sacrifices for the daily worship of God. God. So what's happening right here is James is talking in a worship context. Old Testament ears would hear this in a worship context. So James tells us trials make us better worshipers. I mean, church folk, have you ever heard the phrase, well, all of life is worship? You may have ever heard that. Well, that phrase is not in the Bible. That's okay. Neither is the Trinity, but it's taught right here. God uses trials to make our whole life worshipful. He uses trials to make us better worshipers. So in verse 4, the full effect of endurance and steadfastness for a Christian is glorifying God with your life. God is honored by lives that reflect the reality of his grace, not pious platitudes. Christians are supposed to have staying power access to gospel resources for life's challenges, and God uses trials to get us there. This is why we should have joy in trials, because trials, here's how I want to put it. Trials are like the cardio of the Christian life, okay? No one likes to do cardio. Even the really skinny and shaped people, they're faking it. They don't like it, They'll stop as soon as the timer's up, man. Okay, they just, they're just more disciplined or whatever. But none of us like cardio. You do the cardio, why? Because it burns the fat and it makes you healthy. But you don't dig it, you do it, right? And that's trials, man. Trials burn out the fat and they make you healthy. And it's okay if you don't dig them. God says just do them and I'll bring you joy. That's what James wants us to see. Now, everything I just said, I know that's pretty hardcore. Okay, That's, that's, that's varsity right there. What if, if, though, you kind of look at your Christian life and like, well, yeah, but I'm kind of JV. Or what if you're like me, you're like, well, I'm actually kind of like a freshman B-team practice squad level. Okay, for those of you not athletic, that means really bad. Well, James has an app for that. Verses 5 through 8, there's joy right there. If you don't have it, it's for the asking. James tells us right away, if you're no good at joy and trials, ask God. And I love how he says that because when we're in trials and we ask God, what's the first thing we tend to ask for? For it to stop, right? And James like, no, don't, don't ask for that. Ask for joy in the trial. Ask for the wisdom to see God working in your trials. Notice, he, that's the question he answers, right? Ask God and he will give you wisdom. All that stuff from verses one through four, that's walking in biblical wisdom, seeing joy, recognizing it's the cardio, recognizing it's supposed to hurt, but it's making you better. You're for it. Okay, that's wisdom. James says that the wise Christian has a steadfast faith made that way from trials, and they see it. And if you don't have that wise joy, just ask. And my favorite part is he tells us that God answers that prayer without reproach. He's not us. He doesn't do what we would do. Oh, I need help, this is really hard. Well, did you give your best? Did you follow the procedure? <laughs> did you leave out a step? Have you double checked your work? Have you gone out there and given 110%? Right? God's like, okay, here you go. Aren't you glad that he's not like us? And he gives without reproach. He gives graciously, when that junk happens, he's like, here you go, have some resources. God doesn't grow weary of our asking. He doesn't chide us, to tell us to fix ourselves. He's always there ready to help, James tells us. He doesn't reprimand us for not having wisdom in trial. He says, I know you don't have wisdom. That's why I brought the trial. So here, have some now. It's so gracious. It's so encouraging. I just love it. And then James has to go and ruin the ride in verses six through seven. Let's look at that together. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord we have to ask without doubting don't even bother to ask if you're going to doubt he says I mean are you kidding me when we ask the question of God now we got to ask it of James James have you met any Christians we're riddled with doubts aren't we What in the world do we do with this? Well, James here is not speaking of an occasional doubt. He's talking about an ongoing action of doubting. He says, you can't assume that the Lord will give you relief or give you wisdom if you ask refusing to believe the promises of the gospel. Now see, from the context of the whole book, here's what's going on here. It seems these Jewish Christians were resting in their orthodoxy. They were, I know you guys probably can't relate to this, but here's what happens. Some Christians do this, and these Jewish Christians were doing it. They they anchored their hope and their trust and their security in their conservative theological beliefs more than in the grace of God and Jesus. They assumed that, their right beliefs made God love them more than those people over there who don't believe as rightly as we do. I wanna make sure we get this. So boys and girls, if you're still here, let's look at your six and seven, kind of in the middle there at the bottom of page nine. Here's how we put it for you guys. It says this, James says, but ask him as a child to a father instead of trying to get him to love you because you're really good. You can't expect him to give you anything because of what you do. You see, boys and girls, your parents don't love you more because you do good one day, and and they don't love you less because you did bad the next, and and James wants us to see God doesn't treat us that way either. See what James is doing here for everyone is James uncovers here what a heart that lives in the doubt of God looks like. It's a heart that never goes to the Father when, when scared. Instead, it remains in an idolatry of fear and it's all wrapped up in good Christian language and correct belief. so it's really hard to see. Here's what I mean. Maybe some of you can relate to this. Have you ever been on probation at work? You know, you had that review no matter what your job is there's some sort of review sometimes you know the review is happening sometimes you don't and then all of a sudden they you know they come and talk to you about your review and if you don't quite match up you're put on what's called a improvement plan and at the end of the improvement plan if you have not you know improved you could pretty much lose your job so let's not get distracted as to how i know this process this well okay that's not important that's not important right now okay here's what's important is When Christians live in an ongoing mentality of doubt, the kind of doubt James is talking about here, not really anchored in God's grace, we assume that trials mean we're on probation with God and that this must be some sort of improvement plan and I better shape up or he's going to reject me. Because it's not about what Jesus did on the cross, it's about me and my behavior and my right beliefs. That's an ongoing doubt that James is talking about here. If you come from that mentality, yeah, he's got nothing for you. See, because the gospel is what? The gospel is that no, Jesus was put on probation for us. That he was fired for our poor performance. And that his perfect evaluation was given to us by grace. And if all of that is true, we can never be on probation because it's been taken care of. If we've confessed faith in the resurrected Jesus, we're accepted by God, we're adopted into his family, we're beloved children. So trials don't mean God's upset with us. And if we think they do mean that, that false conclusion is the doubting he speaks of in verses six and seven. See, if we're not grounded in the gospel, but instead in some, some sort of religious hobby, let's call it churchianity, we assume that our religious behaviors cause God to give us a good life. And so trials make us doubt because, uh-oh, I'm not living right. So when things aren't good, instead of resting in joy, instead of seeing all the joy of, wow, God is present and working, even in the midst of this junk, instead, what do we do? We try harder to be a good Christian, whatever that means. I actually don't know the definition of that. And when the trial doesn't end, when our being good doesn't work, it makes us very unstable, James says. It makes us tossed about emotionally. We have absolutely no stability. Non-Christians here today are listening. This is why you've met many unhappy Christians. Because when we have a shallow grasp of the gospel, when, when the difficulties of life inevitably come, we appear to have no resources. We're just as petty and bitter and quick to anger as people who don't know Jesus because we're not tapping into those resources in our difficulty. We're denying them in our doubts. I'm sorry that that's been your exposure to Christianity. Be, pa- be patient with us. We're a, we're a works in progress. See, because the gospel has amazing resources to deal with the difficulties of life. If you'll just ask, James tells us, And in verse eight, James gives us this great picture of the instability that comes when we don't ask for wisdom. he uses a great phrase. You're double-minded, unstable in everything. It's almost like there are two people is what James is saying. I mean, imagine some sort of like back and forth. I was gonna say like maybe Gollum from Lord of the Rings, but it doesn't quite catch it. I mean, it's more like you're trying to believe the truth, but you're also trying to deny the truth. Like, no, I rest in God's promises in the gospel. I know life is difficult, but I rest in him. Like, no, no, we have to earn our way out of this trial. Perform more for God, do more, be more, become more, give more. No, 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 really, Jesus performed for me. I believe that, I don't have to perform. No, 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 work harder to end this trial. There's no stability or joy there, is there? You know, one time, I remember it, it was the day of my high school baccalaureate. I was driving back in my, in my truck outside Memphis, Tennessee, pulled into my neighborhood, and I hit a squirrel. I did, I hit a squirrel. I, I saw it coming, and I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not the kind of driver who swerves and injures people to avoid a small animal. I, some of you may, that, that's cool, that, that's not me. So I saw the squirrel, he darted in front of me, so I kind of drifted this way to avoid him. And he darted this way, so I kind of drifted this way. We're getting closer, and he darted right back in front of me, so I drifted, I was like, I'm gonna straddle him right here. So I'm going over, oh, I hear ba-boom. Like, oh. <laughs> that was a double-minded squirrel, unstable in all his ways. He couldn't make up his mind. Ba-boom. And that's what happens to us, James says. Trials come. Oh, I better perform better. No, no, I need to believe the gospel. No, I need to work hard. Blah, blah, And so we kind of just check out. We say things like, the church is just irrelevant. There's nothing practical there to help me. I don't like the pastor. I don't like the music. I don't like the way they dress. I don't like this. Blah, 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 blah. And really, it's none of those things. It's not living in what Jesus has done, and instead, it's living for an idol of doubt, an idol of performance, which makes you unstable, unfulfilled, with no peace and no joy. Man, if that's you, repent and believe the gospel. Do what James says in your difficulties. Ask God for wisdom in your trials. See, James is a concerned pastor here. So he's given them principles in verses one through four. He's given them an application in verses five through eight. And now he gives a tangible example in verses nine through 12. We see there's joy in God's love. Let's look together at verses nine and 10, what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. See, all Christians deal with the trials of of money, either fear of want, or the sloth and lack of fervor of having plenty. And James tells both to boast in the cross. The poor is elevated because Jesus chose to die for them. The rich is humbled because Jesus had to die for them. It's the only way. See, it's the gospel that defines their value not their earthly financial status. That's the wisdom of the trial of money. The lowly is not of lesser value. They are one with the exalted Jesus. The rich are not more important because they are one with the lowly suffering servant. But there's more here than just that. The word for rich doesn't always mean money in the New Testament. It it can mean being full like being full in your heart. Sometimes it's used with other adjectives to be almost like an arrogance. You're so full of yourself. And then the word lowly is not about money at all. There's actually a different word for poor. Notice he doesn't say rich, poor here. He says lowly and then this word for being full. And so really what's happening here, he's actually pointing back into the legalistic works centered doubting of verses six through seven. In other words, both the lowly and the rich here are those who look to their own religious behavior and beliefs instead of resting in the gospel. The lowly assume that they're poor performers, and so they wallow in despair instead of resting in Jesus' performance. The rich assume they're good performers, and so they wallow in their pride instead of being humble that they could never outperform Jesus, and they need him. I tried to capture all of that because I know it's, it's, a, it's an analogy. I'm trying to translate an analogy. So I tried to capture all that for the kids in verses nine and 10. So let's all look at the kids' translation of verse nine and 10. It's at the bottom of page nine there. It says this, instead, when you've really messed up, rejoice to be one with Jesus the king. When you think you've made God love you, rejoice to be one with Jesus the servant. See what James is trying to get at here is the lowly failures are tempted to think God doesn't care. And the rich successful are tempted to not care about God. But God wants to bless both with joy. So he sends them each trials to break up those false beliefs. And that's how James sums it up. Let's look together at verse 12, his summary statement. He says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, it goes right back to that theme of steadfast endurance and grace. Why? Because trials are lifelong. They, don't, they, they have respites, but they don't go away. Sorry, if, in case you were hoping I, I would say something else. They don't, they don't. You know, so for us, in a time of transition, you know, a changing community, a changing culture, a recent change of church staff, COVID changing everything and then things slowly changing back, those are all trials. Not big ones, but they're trials. And they're opportunities to seek wisdom from God. See, God intends trials to strengthen us, to strengthen our faithfulness, to strengthen our joy. And the proof is that he promises us a crown of victory. This is not like a medieval crown that a king or or queen would wear. This is a Roman crown. Their professional athletes wore crowns. Those who won in the games got crowns. Think of it like a Super Bowl ring is what he's saying here. That you will have earned a great victory and God's gonna give you the ring, man. You can have that piece of bling that you can wear everywhere to show that you have gotten wisdom in trial, that you have endured. We can get a crown of victory. And the reason we can get one is because we can have this crown of life because Jesus Christ received a crown of thorns. He died to secure our forgiveness and our place in God's family. We never have to earn that place. Our crown of life is secured by his life, death, and resurrection. And in that secure place of love and acceptance, God wants us to then grow up. Our tests, failed and passed tests, Teach us to cling to God for wisdom and for mercy, to get that gospel truth deeper into our hearts. See, God's not out to get you. But neither is he out to shower us with leisure and untarnished privilege in this life. Following after Jesus is a call to suffer while being loved and cherished unconditionally. Man, if you don't know Jesus like that, where do you get your resources when life's not working? what is it you go to is it working can it make the promises that the gospel has made here in james because when the pressure is on james tells us god's joy is there for the asking so the question is will you ask for it let's pray together <clears throat> oh gracious god and heavenly father lord We don't want to do this. We just want you to stop the trials. And there's a big part of our heart that just wants to say that. Lord, would you give us the wisdom to ask you for joy in our trials? Would you give us repentance, Lord, from our doubting, from our seeking to earn your favor, or from our living in despair, assuming we can't earn your favor because we're not looking to Jesus? Would you help us once again, Lord, to see the Lord Jesus Christ in his beauty? that he has done all things well and accomplished salvation for us, that we might rest in him. We pray, Lord, for those of us here who know you, that you would anchor us more deeply in the reality of that gospel, that we might have joy in our trials. And Lord, we ask here today for those who do not know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, that he would draw all people to himself. Would you even now do your work of salvation and build your kingdom here? And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.